The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. It's just so important for us to, to remember those, those truths, and, and it was those truths on those banners that drove Puritan pilgrims by the thousands from Holland and England to the Americas from faraway lands to worship without government overreach. You may know some of the early Ivy League schools were founded on Puritan and Reformed convictions. Those Ivy League schools today are far from that now, but today the Evangelical Church of America needs to be Reformed and needs to be purified back to God's truth. And we need our own hearts to continually be reforming and transforming and purifying. And the book of Exodus gives the foundations of those truths. And the passage we're going to look at is going to point us to that gospel. And pure worship is, is one of the themes of the whole story of Exodus, how God's people are going to be driven from Egypt, from a faraway land, to find a place where they can worship God freely and fully without that oppressive government there in Egypt. And they're going to give God the glory alone at the end of this chapter. But first we're going to see in this chapter what it means to be God's son. And how disobeying God's word can mean death. And how blood and covenant can save from death. And then how we should respond in worship. In pure worship. And as we look at Exodus 4, the context is God speaking to Moses in Arabia, in a burning bush, and he's telling him to go back to Egypt. So Exodus 4, verse 22, God says to Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve, or your Bible might say, He may worship me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshipped. Let's bow our heads and worship in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I come as your Son by grace, asking you to be merciful, to visit your people again, your sons and daughters again, as we gather together here, would you help us to believe, or we believe, help our unbelief, 
Help us to believe and help us to be encouraged that You see everything we're going through. You are with us. You meet us in our time of need. But help me to speak all the words that You have spoken so that You would meet us in a special way. Help us to worship. Help us to bow down in Jesus' name. Amen. The end of the passage really gives us the application. We don't have to wonder how we should respond because we see the right way to respond. They bowed and they worshipped. And so I want to take the cue from the text and and look at what caused them to bow and worship and, and how we need to also bow to God's sovereignty and obey. And we need to worship as God's Son by adoption. The, the end of verse 31 shows us that response. It shows us where the passage is going. And this is where we should go. We know this because other passages say things like this. Come, let us. It's a command. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. We're to bow in humble adoration. We're to proclaim how great Thou art. And so the first part in this context, is bowing to God's sovereignty. Look at the end of verse 30 where it says, they, they did the signs in the sight of the people. And then in verse 31, the people bowed. They believed. What were the signs? We've been looking at them as earlier in this passage. The first part of it, he, he takes his staff and he, he throws it down and he turns it into a serpent. And then he picks up that staff again and it becomes a a snake showing God's power over creation and, and all creatures. And God has real power. The, the staff was a symbol in, in Egypt in particular of power and authority. The, the Pharaoh's staff was kind of a visible representation of that. But God's showing, I have real power. That's just an inanimate object. I can actually turn this staff into a serpent and I can, I can pick it up again and, and, and he's He's emphasizing that I have authority over you, Pharaoh. I have Egypt by the tail, and all of you are going to bow before me. And in verses 6-7, through then God shows His power and the sovereign ability to heal a, a, a disease or to afflict the body at will. And so He has power over the body. And in verses 9, the sign for Israel was showing God's power over life and Death. So some of the water from the Nile, which was the source of their life, now turns to blood, and blood comes from death. And so we see that in the passage as well. Moses and Aaron do these signs before Israel. And it says the people believe and they, and they bow the head to, to God. There's these visual signs, but there's also these verbal statements. We look at verse 11 of God's absolute sovereignty. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? That means unable to speak. Who makes him deaf? Who makes him seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He's sovereign over that. There's no mistakes to God in what He makes. He is sovereign. We're not to, as we heard last week from Cliff's excellent message, we're not to blame him with any wrongdoing. We're to bow and to trust his good purposes. 
And there are things in this world, as I've said before, that are the result of the curse, but God is sovereign as to how and where and to who that curse affects us. And He gives grace in our weakness, as we saw last time. He has purposes in all of it. It's not meaningless. There is purpose in all of that. And in verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. And remember, Pharaoh thought he was the sovereign ruler. But the Bible says even the hearts of kings are in the, the hand of the Lord like channels of water. He can turn it this way, he can turn it that way. And we see throughout Scripture, sometimes he takes the, the hearts of even pagan kings to bring about his purposes. He turns it this way, but with Pharaoh, he's going to turn it this way. And God has the power to do that. He's going to harden this king's heart so that he won't let Israel go without an almighty intervention and the utter defeat of all of Egypt. And, and the, the showing the emptiness of all of Egypt's idols, there's going to be ten different plagues to show this. And And he's going to bring them to the point where the people are all pleading with him to go. The people are giving them their riches. He's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that all those things will take place and that it will be seen that only the Lord is the true Lord over all. And it will also be seen even to some of the Egyptians that this is the true Lord, not the God of Egypt. And some of the Egyptians are going to come to fear the Lord. So there's grace even in the midst of judgment on Pharaoh. There is grace that we're going to see for Egypt. And, and we need to make a careful distinction here as we think of disabilities and special needs, as you heard, that are, that are not judgment for personal sin. The disciples wrongly thought that. Who made this man blind? And Jesus said it wasn't because of the, his sin or his parents' sin. And even when there are accidents that can bring about those things, God has merciful purposes. So it's not a judgment for personal sin when you see someone, but there is judgment. God is sovereign to give judgment for Pharaoh, for his sin. Remember, Egypt had been killing all of the baby boys. They had been enslaving an entire ethnic group. And so God's sovereignty also works with his justice. He is a just God, but he's also gracious. He's going to save some of these Egyptians, despite their hard-hearted dictator. He's going to save some of them, and they're going to come with them, with some of them in Israel in Exodus 12. He has mercy. He has elect in Egypt. He also has hardening and judgment on the reprobate. And the message for Pharaoh in this is that you need to bow to God's sovereignty. The message to all is you need to obey. We're going to see here disobedience is dangerous. Not just for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites as well. Psalm 95 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God. But then it says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. There's a warning to us. As you hear God's Word going forth, do not harden your hearts. The reality is there are hearts right here They're going to be hearing this message today and their hearts are going to be hardening rather than softening to God's truth. I want to say to you from God's word, as you hear his voice, do not harden his heart. Don't set up blockades in your life and your heart as you hear the word going forth. You need to bow and you need to submit 
to this Lord. And here's the warning in verse 23 to this hard-hearted man. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And again, there's this issue of who is in charge here. Who's sovereign? Pharaoh thinks he's sovereign. But Israel is God's son. They're to serve, they're to serve God. They're not to serve Pharaoh. Pharaoh was actually taking the place of God in making the Israelites his absolute subjects, making them obey in a way that only God should claim. They were to bow to him. They would be in utter submission to him. But God is the one who Pharaoh must bow to in absolute submission and who Pharaoh will beg from later. But God says he will sovereignly kill their firstborn. God is sovereign over creation, creatures, bodies, hearts, life, death. He says, I will kill. But if you believe like verse 31, it's good news. If a sovereign God sees our affliction, we need to bow to him. Here's a, here's a thought when we think of God's sovereignty. Because there's some tough questions you might have, but God's sovereignty in Scripture is not presented as a tough pill to swallow. It should be a soft pillow to sleep on. Knowing that God is good and that He is sovereign over all, even over evil things that are happening, isn't so much a tough pill to swallow. It's a soft pillow that you can rest your head on at night knowing God is sovereign and He is good to His children. So don't make His sovereignty bow to your thinking. This is something we're to bow our head to, bow our mind and our thoughts to. And like verse 31, like we need to worship Him for it, rest in Him. There are hard questions that this text doesn't answer. There's hard things for us to wrap our mind around. But for me, as I read verses 24 through 26, this was a harder section, and it actually raised more questions than answers as I went through it. So let's look at it together. Verse 24, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And all God's people said, huh? <laughs> I was working through these verses this week, and I, I talked with my dad earlier, and I said, I'm, I'm going to tell him, if you're not sure what some of that means, just talk to my dad, or, or talk to your dad. He might tell you to ask your mom, but this is, this is one of those, I don't remember seeing this in the... The movies, the flannel graph sets, uh, none of the children's Bibles have this story. I'm thinking, this is, this is part of the story? Uh, see, we preach verse by verse, and we don't skip over anything that God intends, even if it offends some. But we need to understand what's, what's going on here. And it's, some things may not be clear to us in our culture today, but what's clear is at least one of Moses' sons is not circumcised yet till verse 
25. And then verse 24 says, and it seems like it kind of, it doesn't seem like it fits the flow, but, but maybe it does more than we think. But on the way back to Israel, God sought to kill him. And I think this is, this is really confusing if you don't have some context. And, and so our scripture reading this morning, if you, you were listening, was the first mention of circumcision in the Bible. And Moses, the same writer of the same scroll, is expecting that you've read this, that any uncircumcised male is to be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant, Genesis 17, 14. And the, the penalty for covenant breaking was to be cut off even to death. And so that's the, the background of Exodus 4, 24, where it becomes clear there's, there's someone in Moses' family who hasn't been obedient to that covenant sign. And o- obeying this was deadly serious to God under the old covenant. And so as we see that Moses and his son are in danger, now the next verse goes to show us that it's not just Mo- I'm sorry, Pharaoh and his son. Moses and his son are in danger as well. Not just Pharaoh and his son, but Moses and his son. And I think really the test that comes to Moses, similar to a, a test with Abraham and his son, where he was going to kill his son, but God really didn't intend to kill him. It was a test. The test here is, do you trust and obey the Lord? And in Moses' case, how is he going to go back to the covenant people of God? How is he going to lead them if he has broken the covenant in his own family? And the New Testament principle is leaders need to lead those in their own home, but Moses in particular, how is he going to write God's law? How is he going to write God's law about this if he's still been disobedient to the law? If he's a lawbreaker in this most significant sign that set apart Israel, and if he's not even trying to make right his wrong, it's one thing to recognize you're wrong and do something about it, but apparently he hasn't, and his wife steps in. And sometimes a wife helps her husband when he fails. And Zipporah is helping in verse 25, but it's, it's not completely clear right here if the reason she's doing it is because Moses in verse 24 was near death and, and maybe incapacitated, or some think it was his firstborn son who was about to die. Based on verse 23, right before that, it says, your firstborn son, and it says he was going to be put to death, but the, the language isn't clear, so you've got questions, even from some of the older Jewish writers, weren't completely clear on some of these details. It seems like there were some Midianite cultural things that would have been known when Moses wrote this, but are lost to us today. And I actually read a lot on this. I'm still not sure what bridegroom of blood means or how she put it on his feet or or what was going on. Some your translations say she cast it on him. Some that I read said that this, this actually could be, it sounds maybe negative, but it could be using positive covenant language that, that we're now really in the covenant of blood together. So there's some things that aren't clear, but here's what's clear in verse 26. After the son is circumcised, the Lord doesn't bring the threatened death. He let him alone. And it's also clear, don't miss this big picture, a woman again saves the day. This has been happening in, in Exodus. In chapter 1, it's the midwives, those faithful women, Shipra and Pua, who save the day and thwart the plan of this evil king. And then in chapter 2, it's Moses' birth mom and his, 
Miriam, Moses' little sister, and then the, the daughter of the king who's trying to kill the baby boys, those women actually save this one who is going to help deliver Israel. Now his wife is the one who is involved here in stepping up and, and serving. And what we see in the story is Moses is not the hero. This is not the book of Moses. This is the book of the exodus of, of God. Moses is a covenant-breaking, excuse-making sinner saying, send someone else. That's what he said in this chapter. Just send someone else. He hasn't been faithful in the most basic Jewish duty on the eighth day. What fathers were to do, this shouldn't have been Zipporah doing this. But you, you know what else? As we step back to the big picture, this shows us that this is not a book written by mere men. This is not the kind of book that people write in, in the ancient times and they leave out any of the details that weren't good for their main characters. Moses is the one writing this, but it's inspired by God to give the unflattering, unvarnished truth. And so when you read things like this, that should encourage you. This is unlike any other ancient book that makes man the hero. This is, this is inspired by God. And the Bible celebrates sisters in the faith in a way that no other books or religions did in history. And it celebrates that sinners, God can change and God can use them. And, and that's what he's going to do with Moses. And we're also reminded here that there's only one perfect father. We can, as parents, maybe look back with regrets where we've been imperfect, but God still is going to use you. He works through imperfect parents because that's who he has to work with. And we're a room full of that, but we have a perfect father who works through our imperfect families. And that should encourage us, even if things are messy. This is a messy text right here. This is a bloody text. This was probably gross to Zipporah, but so is sin to God. And there's some interesting things to note before we move on from here. The, in verse 25, this bloody skin is touched. It's, that's the key word. It's touched to him, and then he didn't die in verse 26. And it's the same root word that Moses is going to use just in a few chapters to talk about when you go to the doorpost and the lintels, this is in the Passover, and you touch, same verb, you touch the lintels, you touch the two doorposts with the blood so that there can be grace for you, so that the, the, the angel of death will pass over you. And it, it gives the same response there in Exodus 12. The people bowed their heads and they worship. This is when God was going to put to death the firstborn sons of Egypt, just like he promised the verse right before this section here in chapter 4. But that death would have also fallen on Israel. It wasn't just threatened to Egypt. It was threatened to Israel also, unless they were touched by the blood or, or covered by the blood. But it's the same word, that the same verb Moses chose here, same root word for the blood that that touched in chapter 4. And it seems in some sense Moses is experiencing what his people are going to later experience, how death can pass over if, if you are touched and covered by the blood of another. So in chapter 4, it's 
The salvation comes through the blood of a son. In, in chapter 12, the salvation of physical life comes through the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Hebrews 9 says, in, in the law, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And physical touch also in the law often identified someone with the covenant that was cut and confirmed in blood. And so as Moses is going to write the law later, there's often times where the priests, there's, there's a, a symbolic touching and there's an identifying either with the, the sacrificial animal or even with the, the people in some way and, and the blood being sprinkled upon them. And Exodus 12 is, is, is going to talk more about this, but here we have in chapter 4 the death to the disobedience, but there can be life saved by this covenant grace and by the blood of another identifying or touching. And Exodus 12 is going to talk about the blood of the Lamb touching and covering, and then it's also going to talk about circumcision before Passover in chapter 12 and how that was a way that even Gentiles could partake of this as well. They could even come in and be a part of this and all the benefits. And so this isn't just for Old Testament Israel. God is in the book of Exodus going to provide a way for believers of all nations to gather with His people and worship. And they're going to begin to do that in chapter 12. But in a small way, this strange story points us to our story. I'm reminded of how Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were once strangers to the covenant. And I was literally thinking as I was studying this earlier this week, I, I feel like I'm a stranger to these covenant things here. I'm, I'm far away, I'm far removed from these things that we're reading about. And that's what Paul says we were in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and Paul also makes clear that, that we're not bound by circumcision laws in the new covenant that Corey talked about. We're not bound by the ceremonies of the old covenant, but our sinful disobedience still deserves death without the shed blood of the Son. And so that's what Ephesians says. We were once far off. We were once strangers to the covenant, but he says, now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so God's Son, He kept the law perfectly for us, for our sinful disobedience. He obeyed every iota and jot and tittle of the law. He was cut off in death for us, for our law-breaking. He did that for us. And He shed His blood for His bride. Even though the wages of sin is death. And not just death for bad guys that we think are the bad guys on the Old Testament. For us, who the Bible says are part of the bad guys, apart from grace, that we are sinners. We need, by God's standard, we fall short. But Jesus' blood covers all who bow and confess that He is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. And so I need to ask you, have you bowed your head? Have you bowed your heart? Have you bowed your life to Jesus as your Lord and as your sovereign Savior. If not, today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart as you hear the, the mercy that is offered to you. If you will turn from your sins, turn from yourself, turn from trying to do it your own way, and if you will humble yourself before this God, if you, those who come to Him, He says, I will in no wise cast out. 
He receives any who come humbly and lowly in repentant faith. And so I want to urge you to come to this Lord. Turn from your sin. Trust His blood alone to save you. If you need help with that, we'd love to pray with you afterwards. But I know there's many believers in this room, and I, I want to say a word to you as well in application here. Is there an area of your life that you have not bowed to the Lord? And maybe it's been years for you, like, like Moses. Maybe you've been putting it off, or maybe you're thinking, yeah, I haven't done that, but it's, it's not going to be a big deal. Let me urge you to make that, pursue making that right. Get help if you need making that right. Baptism is a first step of basic obedience as a Christian disciple. Joining our our church and covenant commitment is a way we seek to obey together. We need help in this, and the shepherds of the church would love to help any of you follow the Lord, whether it's baptism or membership or just relationships that you need help with in your weakness, some area of your Christian life. You need another brother or sister to, to come alongside you. Moses needed help. He needed help of Aaron. Moses needed help of Zipporah. We all need others to help us obey. It is prideful to think we are greater than Moses or greater than anyone else. If you're a parent here, are you seeking to to pass on and make clear God's truth to your children in some way? And with another believer, do do you help to to speak the truth in love where there's an area of sin that they are neglecting that is significant? Are you serving here and sharing in some way? Maybe it's in children's ministry, another ministry, but are you doing that for your family? Are you pursuing that at at home as well or with with others? Whatever it is that, that needs to bow, give it to Christ. And He is gracious as we bow to His sovereignty and obey. And then number two, Worship as God's Son by adoption. In the rest of chapter 2, two sons come together. They've been sons together when Moses was just a little guy and when he was in the process of being adopted his first few years. But adult Moses had been gone for 40 years now. These two sons are going to go together back to the sons of Israel. They're going to tell them about God and, and what they had heard from Him. And and that we need to go worship Him. In verse 31, the people... Remember, this has been hundreds of years of slavery. And listen to these words. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. They heard that He has come. He... He knows us. He sees us. He hears us. He's, he's the, the Father who is coming to us. And so they're responding in, in worship here. Not just, not just because they've been seen by God in their affliction, but as the Son of God by adoption. This is, this is an amazing little detail in the text here that's actually a very big thing and theme in Scripture. But when verse 31 says, they heard the Lord had visited them. This is a, a word that's used in the Old Testament of visiting with, with grace, but it's also used in the New Testament of a true religion that it includes visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. That's the Father's heart. And, and here He is visiting Israel to adopt them as His 
son. In verse 29, Israel's elders gather. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And so he's, everything that he told Moses, Aaron is passing that on. So this is what they heard before they worship. And it would include what he spoke in verse 22. Verse 22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Firstborn is the place of preeminence. It's not even really emphasizing birth. It's, it's emphasizing the, the position of preeminence and, and blessing. But also, firstborn implies there's more to come. Israel is my firstborn son. But there's an implication even in that. There's going to be more children to come. But the, the Hebrew word order is emphatic. Thus says the Lord, my son, my firstborn, Israel is. This is dramatic, it's emphatic, and it's drawing attention to the first time that God has ever spoken about His Son. It's been more than 2,000 years of, of history now, maybe 2,500 years or, or so, but this is the first time God is now speaking of His people, and He's calling out of Egypt, my Son. He is committing now to be a father to Israel. He's going to come as a father would and do what a, a father would for the situation that Israel is in now. Moses had been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, but Israel is now adopted by their father, God. This is what Romans 9, 4 comments. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the giving of the law. The worship, and it talks about the covenants, and, and those came together here with the writing of Moses, the giving of the law, the covenants, the worship, but he starts with the adoption. The adoption was what belonged to Israel. These afflicted slaves of Pharaoh are now the adopted sons of their father in heaven. So look at Exodus 4.23. I say to you, let my son Go. He's going to say later, let my people go. But here from the get-go, he wants them to know, this is my son. That's my son. You need to let my son go. And Moses would later say this to Israel, looking back on the Exodus, what God did bringing his son out. God carried you. Think of this picture as a man carries his son all the way. He cared for Israel. He kept him as the apple of his eye. This is what he was doing as he goes and he gets those people. He brings them out. He's carrying them the whole way. He's, he's loving them. And he, he is keeping them like, like the very apple of his eye, the very middle of your eye. And God would say this later in Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him and I called him out of Egypt. I myself, out of Egypt, I called my son. He says, I myself taught Israel how to walk. So think of when you've taught little ones how to walk, leading him along by the hand. He says, it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with ropes of kindness. I lifted the yoke from his neck. I myself stooped to feed him. 
I, I know even in VBS here, we've got these little kids walking around. We give them these little ropes to hold on to so they don't go wandering off, so they don't get hurt. It says God, it's like he's, he's helping his people with these little ropes. He's, he's stooping all the way down to help, them, to help them walk. Here, come here, let me help you to walk. And, and he's stooping all the way down. He's getting down there so he, can, so he can feed, so he can help his own son. God says, that's what I was doing with, with Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. And that's a prophetic language, but it's affectionate language of his redeeming and delivering and loving and caring for his son all the way. It was going to be the father all the way. And this is the father of scripture that we worship, the one who stoops down to care for us, who's come all the way down in in the gospel to us to meet our needs, to come down to our level, to help us, to be gracious with us, to help us when we're stumbling and, and falling, to, to lovingly come alongside us. This is what the gospel is all about. And in fact, we know that because Exodus 4.19 has a gospel echo that Matthew talks about. Exodus 4.19, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey. Turn to, turn to Matthew 2, because we need to see this other time where a man and his wife and son on the way traveled like that. Herod was the New Testament of ver, of version of Pharaoh. He was the New Testament version of Pharaoh. We might say he was the first century version of Planned Parenthood, killing babies that got in the way of kingdom and career plans. But God protected the baby Moses. He protected the baby Messiah. Moses would later flee to Egypt. Or in, in the Moses story, look at Matthew two fourteen. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Pharaoh. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. That's what I just read from you, from Hosea. So this is fulfilling in that whole passage there, in the whole context of how out of Egypt he called his son. And then verse 20, the angel told him, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. That's what was said in the Old Testament, but it's said now in the New Testament. And so Matthew's making a connection here by the inspiration of God. And so we we need to apply this the way the New Testament applies this. Exodus 4 ends with Israel in worship as God's son. But we have, with the whole Bible, we have greater ways to to praise today, even by these very same truths here. It was by adoption that God called out of Egypt his son Israel. But in this story, we're going to see they were like us. They sinned. They were unfaithful. Chapter 5 and and following through the New Testament, really, God's people have been unfaithful. And so there was going to need to be a new exodus. This would be a physical exodus for Israel, but a new and spiritual and greater exodus would still be needed. Where the heavenly son would come as a new Israel, as a true Israel, in the sense of being faithful where Israel failed. And that's what we read in the, in the New Testament. Revelation, and think of that language, the, the firstborn, which means the preeminent one. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. 
to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. So when John sees Jesus in heaven, he's revealed this way. He is the faithful one, the firstborn from the dead. That's not talking about birth. That's talking about the the first to, to be resurrected. He's the preeminent one of others who will be resurrected. He's the ruler over kings, and He loves us. And He's freed us. He's redeemed us. He's liberated us from our sins by His blood. And so John sees that and he bows at the sovereign ruler who is the preeminent firstborn. And he's the one who loves us and frees us. That's who Jesus is. Colossians 1 says he is the firstborn over all creation. That in everything he might be the preeminent. So he's the firstborn over all that God has made. And in everything he is to be preeminent. He's to be first place in everything. He's not just to be Christ, you know, we have him first, and then it's, it's, it's us, our family, our work, our church, whatever like that. No, Christ is to be preeminent in our work, in our family, in everything we do. He is to be preeminent. And Hebrews 1 says God brings the, the firstborn into the world. And this is what he says, let all God's angels worship him. So it's not just his people. All of his angels were to worship him as he brings him into the world. And Hebrews 12 goes on to say, as we come to worship, we're, we're joining angels in, in the assembly. And, and he, says, he says this in Hebrews 12, that we are the church of the firstborn. That's Hebrews 12, 23. We are the church of the firstborn. So let us be thankful And let us so worship God, he says, acceptably with reverence and awe. We are the church of the firstborn in that preeminent place of blessing and honor. And Romans 8 talks about the Son. And listen to this, that we would be, remember, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. The next verse talks about how we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn. Born among, anyone know? Many brethren. Don't, don't stop there in Romans 8, 28. There's this glorious truth also in verse 29. He has been, he's predestined us to be more like the image of Christ who is the firstborn of many brethren. There's many brothers and sisters that he is bringing into his family. And so as Jesus comes and as he dies and as he rises again from the grave, he says to Mary at that tomb, go tell my brothers that I am risen. They'd never been called brothers before, but now he says, they're, they're my brothers. Tell them, even though they're sinful and hiding right now, they're my brothers. I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. He calls us brothers. He's the firstborn among many brothers. And Romans 8 also says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So we're not to be slaves now to our fears or to our sins. But he says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom you cry, Abba, Father. You can cry out to him like a, like a little boy. In, even in, in the Middle East today, when he gets lost from his father in the market, you can hear him crying out, Abba, Abba. He's looking. It's the cry of help for his father. That's what, when we're adopted, we Cry out to Him as our Father. And, and Romans 8 says, We are children of God, and if children, then heirs. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ 
had all the blessing, all the prominence and, 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 and blessing and inheritance and all of that that was rightfully his as the natural only begotten son. He shares that with his many brothers and, and sisters. He shares that with, with us. He, he calls us brothers and he treats us as real brothers and sisters. And he shares everything that God rightfully gave to him. He shares it with us. Galatians 4. God sent forth his son to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. So redeeming and adoption goes together. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir. Isn't that good news? You're not a slave of sin anymore in Christ. You are a son of the Father. And so we join Israel going from slave to son by amazing, adopting, redeeming grace. This is what launches Paul into worship at the start of Ephesians 1. He says, God's blessed us in every spiritual blessing with Christ. And and here's where he starts. In, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to himself, to the praise of his glorious grace, that we would worship his grace for which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That's in the Beloved Son. It's in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He, he lavished. Not just a little, He, he lavished this on us. So, so don't, don't, don't let that word son throw you off. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm, I'm a daughter of God. Well, son emphasizes that we are in God's beloved son. We are in him. We're treated like the only begotten son. So behold, what manner of love. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And he says that is what we are. That's not just what we're called. That's what we are in Christ. Amen? Joel Beakey at the conference, he, he taught on adoption. And he said, studying to write a book on, on this theme was sweeter to his soul than anything else he's ever studied or wrote. And that's saying a lot. He's written so many books and read so much. But to know his father more deeply and, and so that we would ask in a greater way, why would God choose to predestine to adopt me? Why would I, when the scripture says, I was a child of wrath by nature, why am I now a child of God? And to know that God chose to adopt me before I knew him, just like earthly adoption. And then he loved me first, and then I genuinely came to know and to love him. This concept of choosing to adopt isn't, doesn't make them robots at all, but it's the father brings them into the family and, and that love is something that because of his love then becomes genuine in the heart of that child. But this spiritually, that doctrine of adoption to the Puritans was, was for many of them the overarching doctrine of salvation. It, it was the apex of all of them because it's more than justification where the judge declares someone righteous. This is actually the judge coming down after he has declared someone righteous and he comes and he acquits. The one he's acquitted, he actually comes and he puts his arm around them. And he comes all the way down on their level, puts his arm around them and then welcomes them and says, I want you to come into my family now. I want you to come into my home now. I'm going to treat you like a, like a son of the king, like, like Mephibosheth. I think Cliff mentioned that last week. 
Like this one who he couldn't even bring himself to the king. He was lame in both feet. But David, who would have naturally been his enemy, then comes and brings him into his family. And it says he was sitting at the king's table. He ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons regularly. That's a picture of what God has done for us. So it's one thing for him to accept us as a judge or just not to send us to hell. It's another thing for him to bring us into the family and to give us all of that fatherly care, us who deserved death. And so if he's done all that for us, that we're really his children, we need to reflect that family likeness. We need to reflect that care to others. So one of the things he said in that message is, before you speak ill of a fellow brother or sister, you need to think this thought, that is my real brother and my real sister. As much, or you might even argue more so than those you grew up with in your family. That's my brother. That's my sister. Or when someone's in need, think that's my brother. That's my sister. We've had three memorial services in in four weeks here and and, and those are times, and, and beyond those times, where we need to see people who have lost loved ones, that they're, how would we, if they were a part of our family, how would we want to continue to come alongside and encourage them? Because they're our real family. He told this story of Joel Beakey did, a woman who had been an orphan all her life. She never knew of any family other than a drunk uncle in Australia. It was the only person she ever knew biologically related to her. But she heard him preaching on these themes here in in adoption in Christ, and she came up to him afterwards and she said with tears in her eyes, I finally now know this is my real family. This is and I've got a big family. I didn't I didn't know I've got a, a wonderful and big family in Christ. And he also told the story of, it was a true story apparently of a boy at sea and storm. He was about the, he's in a boat that's about to go down and everyone else was fearful, but this boy was very calm and they asked him why. And he said, my father is the captain of this boat. I'm not afraid. And if we believe that our father is, is the captain of all things in our life, Jesus says, don't fear, little flock. Your Father, it is His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And he told a story of one of his fellow elders who went through surgery and had complications and eventually came to the point where he was going to need to have that limb amputated because it just kept getting infected. And he called him and said, brother, I'm so sorry. He said, oh, Joel, don't, don't be sorry for me. My Father knows best. As we walked out of that message, I was with another, talking with a brother who had been battling cancer. And he said, I've had to say almost those exact same words going through my cancer journey. I just, by God's grace, I'm able to say, my father knows best. That's bringing sovereignty and adoption together. Let's worship. Let's bow down in prayer as God's Son. Amen. Our great and gracious God, we thank You for these great truths. Lord, help us to be able to trust and obey 
and help us to be able to worship more knowing that You are the Lord of love. You are the Father who cares for us in Your Son. We give Him the glory as we worship You now. Amen.